Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we continue our healthcare on the ballot series, opposing views on the outcome of the midterm election and the impact on health policy moving forward. With former Obama CMS Administrator Don Berwick. We can find a way to move money where health can be preserved. We may see some progress. And Jim Capretta of the Conservative American Enterprise Institute. Medicare's HI Trust Fund is expected to be depleted in five years or so. Factcheck.org's managing editor Lori Robertson checks in and we end with a bright idea. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. Roughly 112 million Americans voted in the recent midterm elections, and the candidates and issues they voted on will have profound implication for health care policy in the states, at the national level, and ultimately in all of our lives. We're following up on our series called Healthcare on the Ballot with the discussion focused in on the results and what they mean. And our guests today are Dr. Donald Berwick, who helped shape the Affordable Care Act during the Obama administration and the co-founder and president emeritus of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Also joining us today is Jim Capretta, a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. He is also the author of a new book, U.S. Health Policy and Market Reforms. Well, welcome to both of you in Conversations on Healthcare. And let's start with a question to each of you. It was widely predicted that the midterms would really trim the sales on the Biden administration's plan for Democrats in the states, and yet the Democrats hold a majority in the Senate, are barely in the minority in the House, and saw many wins for their governors and state lawmakers. What is your view of how these surprising results will influence health policy in the next two years? And let's ask Dr. Berwick to respond first and then go to James. I sure have no uh, crystal ball. We still have a problem passing uh, legislation, uh, given that the House is, is going to be in Republican hands. I suspect the elections uh, signal that there's uh, some public will for some moderation in this highly polarized uh, climate that we're in. I think people want action. They know there are problems. They appeared relatively intolerant of people taking very, very extreme positions. So I hope, against hope perhaps, that this means that there'll be some opportunity for some progress kind of in the center for things that everyone cares about. Everyone's very worried about drug prices. Everyone knows that the Medicare trust fund is threatened. Everyone knows that um, there are people left out of the system now who need to be included. And so, I mean, I'm hopeful there'll be some progress. The Biden administration did pass some very, very important legislation during the past couple of years. And I also suspect that the positive benefits of some of that legislation will become more apparent to people as the Affordable Care Act has been and there'll be some more wind in the sails of some of the reforms that we need. Yeah, some of those uh, policies come in effect in, in January, so we'll see if they come to fruition as they plan. James, your thoughts? Well, I think the uh, secret of the 2021-2022 term, there was a pretty big group of senators, bipartisan group of senators in the Senate, that got a, a fair amount of legislation through to President Biden. And they wanted to make clear to the country that they thought a working Senate was very important, a working Congress is very important. And they're not going to pass legislation that is highly partisan from a, even a Democratic point of view, I think. So something like the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed only with Democratic votes, wouldn't happen this time around. But things in the middle still could pass. Things that are bite-sized, that uh, can get some bipartisan support, support, could still pass. Things like mental health improvements, substance abuse questions. Uh, improvements even to the FDA and, and CDC. Those are possibilities even in this new Congress that's coming in. I think the big uh, action might be in some of the states, actually, as you sort of hinted at with your question. You know, a lot of states are still with lots of so many initiatives like the public option plans, 
trying to do price limitations on certain uh, providers and drugs, uh, some of that action could shift to the states. Well, Jim, you're well aware, and we appreciate your pointing out some of those areas where there does actually seem to be some agreement in the country, hard not to have it on the crisis, mental health, substance abuse, and where we might see some agreement. But um, Dr. Berwick, uh, you are a veteran of many Washington battles, and I know we still have Congress's lame deck session to tackle. The thing it always surprises me is when I see uh, that we're set for something like a decrease in Medicare payments uh, and all providers looking at a 4% cut unless Congress acts. We hear Medicare so often talked about as the third rail, something that you can't touch. Uh, what do you think is going to uh, happen in that arena this year? I'm not sure. The lame duck hasn't got many breaths left, uh, but I think some of the problems you cited, the payment cuts will have to be, I think they'll be moderated. I, I don't think that anything dramatic is going to happen in a lame duck to cut back on payments. Um, I think that there is some work that needs to be done to to make sure that people ha- have the coverage that they they need, and perhaps we're going to see some of that. But I, you know, as Jim said, I think a lot is going to shift to the states in terms of innovations. For example, I would watch not not necessarily during the lame duck, but over the next year or two, Medicaid waivers as an area of very mm-hmm. interesting variation and, and novelty among states. There's some real will to get that done and perhaps the administration then will be able through uh, its administrative authorities to allow more variation among states and trying to do some creative things with financing. Jim, let's, let's stick with Medicare. Your book makes the case uh, for what you call a vigorous and properly structured competition in healthcare that could deliver the same benefits seen elsewhere Uh, in the economy. In an ideal world, what do you think Congress should do about this Medicare payment reduction issue? Let it stand or or make some modifications? Well, I I think the the payment reductions that are scheduled to happen here in the next uh, few weeks, if something isn't done, I think those need to be addressed and probably lessened. I don't know if they need to be gotten rid of altogether, but some moderation of what's expected probably is in order, especially with inflation running at 7%, you know, you have physician practices paying out a lot of expenses. And if their fees also get cut, I mean, you're going to have a real pressure point building there that I think probably won't be sustainable. So just to get through the next few months, they probably should do something there. Having said that, I think over the long run, as your question indicates, they need to kind of take a step back. Medicare's HI trust fund is expected to be depleted in five years or so. They need to look at the whole program how to structure it better, simplify it, make the benefits more uniform and standardized, and improve how beneficiaries interact with the program. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Burke, maybe I can uh, pick up on what you were just referencing as we talk about innovation in Medicare, and you were commenting that the states might actually be looking to do some real innovations in Medicaid through waivers. Would you like to highlight one or two states where you see some really interesting proposals there that you think might move us forward around Medicaid reform? Yeah, Maryland's always interesting to watch. They're they're making continue to try to tweak and adjust their all payer model. Um, my own state, Massachusetts, now has, is implementing a massive Medicaid waiver that I think is to be highly significant. Very important to watch it as as we try to give give an opportunity to move resources to social influences on health, which really is the secret here. If we can find a way to move money where health can be preserved, we may see some some progress against um, our deteriorating health status. California is interesting. I think we're going to have it in Oregon would be good, and there are some midwestern states that I think to watch here. This may not just blue 
move in Medicaid reform. I'd say the basic reforms to watch are ones that move us toward global budgets and consolidated payment, allowing people that give care to use resources to meet many more kinds of needs of patients in Medicaid instead of just continuing to run a repair shop. That's, that's what I've got my eye on right now. I hope all of that can happen. At the federal level, there, there are some early steps. That, for example, in the ACO REACH program, there's a pretty dramatic change. It's small and it may not have immediate impact, but the willingness of Medicare uh, to pay plans just a little bit extra for entering areas of geographic areas of deprivation, it's mm. probably not enough to influence behavior much, but it's the first chink in payment that might us allow us to move some payment toward the social deprivation indices as a way to allocate resources. I must say the other thing that I've got my eye on, but not much hope, is I, I, I as Jim knows, I am very critical of where Medicare Advantage has gone now. I think it's a tremendous problem. It's an tr- enormous subsidy going to private um, insurers now without equivalent benefit at all. And I don't think the administration will have the political chips to take that on, if ever, but um, there's an awful lot of reform needed there, and um, I just wish it would happen. I, I think you're right on that on that Mass 1115 waiver, certainly one uh, we're keeping an eye on. Jim, perhaps one of the silver linings from the pandemic has been really the loosening of regulations that have resulted in the greater use of telehealth, and Americans in rural parts of the country have really embraced greater access to healthcare. It wasn't necessarily on your list earlier, but uh, it has certainly had been a, a benefit for uh, accessing specialists. Um, and yet the flexibility authorized during COVID-19 public health emergency will expire soon. Do you see telehealth as part of this push for market reform? I do. I mean, I don't know if people who are for it are all would all put on the label of market reformers. I think they probably are just saying it's a good potential supplement to existing ways of trying to help patients. Um, and there's bipartisan interest in it. Now, honestly, I think if there is a spending deal here in the next, before, you know, the end of the year, before the holidays, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if telehealth, some fix in telehealth yeah. is put in independently of the public health emergency to allow it to continue for a couple more years, get a real evaluation done of it. You know, there are some concerns about just sort of adding on another service on top of other services without really making substitution and, and cutting costs. So, you know, there's a little bit of question about what it does over time and how it affects patients' health. I would bet the Congress that will authorize it if they get the opportunity, there'd be bipartisan support for that. Give it a couple of years, and have an independent evaluation to see what it's doing to to patient outcomes. Certainly on the ground, uh, we're certainly seeing telehealth as something that contributes to access, especially in that all important area of behavioral health, and now uh, maybe some better ways to make it more available for substance abuse treatment as well. So we certainly are keeping uh, an eye on that. Yeah, maybe a little bit outside the policy realm, but what will captivate the public's attention and has in many ways is upcoming. We hear Republican leaders uh, really want to subpoena Dr. Anthony Fauci, bring him forward uh, for hearings in the House, and, and also talk of hearings about federal waste in the COVID relief programs. Dr. Berwick, you certainly went before Congress many times uh, when you were running the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Do you think these hearings actually serve a role um, and might be a way of you know continuing to educate uh, the country about what the entire COVID pandemic and response was about? Are they needed or not so much? 
we certainly need a, a period of national reflection on what we learned from COVID about preparedness, about pandemic response, about public health response, the strength of the public health system, a public communication, educating the public. There's a tremendous amount of learning that we need to gather and then map it into policy. I, I just must say to take an American here like uh, Dr. Fauci, who is just as good as it gets, both in science and in public leadership and subject him to gaming in uh, testimony, it, 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 it's a waste of time. And, and I wish they would just give it a rest. But we do need to learn. And I, hopefully there'll be a period of reflection in Congress and the executive branch about what this tells us about how to be a more prepared country. We were clearly not prepared. Our performance yeah. was probably about third worst in the world. And we didn't have to use a, lose a million Americans to this disease. We got to be smarter than that. Uh, the other preparedness, I, I can't help mentioning this, is the recent attacks on the grid are not trivial matters. This is uh, as dire a threat for this country as as the public health emergency was in COVID. We are definitely not prepared there. And I hope Congress is going to take this extremely seriously. And it, it would be a, not just a health issue, but certainly a health issue if we can't secure uh, our grid. Well, and we've heard from so many guests that, you know, this isn't the last pandemic that we're going to face. So we really need to be prepared. Jim, uh, you know, of course, you know, uh, Dr. Berwick was a key architect of what we uh, know as Obamacare. And we saw some interesting election results in South Dakota, where voters approved a ballot measure to expand the state's Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act, opening up coverage to additional 40,000 residents. But we also saw that earlier in Oklahoma and uh, Arkansas, very conservative states. Is the fight against Obamacare really over? What does it mean for the future of market reforms that you advocate for? You know, I do think that the question of Medicaid expansion is largely settled. And the reason is that the Affordable Care Act sort of set up a structure where it's easy now for a state to be presented with an, a yes or no question. You either expand Medicaid according to the ACA's stipulations, mm -hmm. or it's going to be very difficult for you to get coverage to that population because you can't undo the rest of the structure of the ACA and go in a wholly different direction. So gi given that the ACA is in place, has been for over a decade, and the only way to get coverage to that very vulnerable population below the poverty line is to provide Medicaid coverage at this point, then yeah, I think that states are wise to just take it because you're not gonna get coverage right. to that population in any other way. So they should adopt it. But remember when President Obama passed the Affordable Care Act, he called it a market-based reform. Remember, it's, it's, it's competition on the exchanges. It's choice amongst private plans. Mm -hmm. It's a Medicaid expansion to be sure, but its central feature was competition amongst insurance plans on the exchanges for the individual market. So in some ways, it is a market reform. And the question for America is how to make our very complicated, fragmented, uncoordinated, and not so well-designed system of public and private work a little bit better together. A question that maybe both of you would like to uh, respond to, uh, but Dr. Berwick, uh, let me start with you. Uh, whether it's in the exam room or town halls or legislative assemblies, few things get people talking like drug prices. And you've noted that there are actions President Biden could take now to lower drug prices, including the uh, most favored nations drug pricing for a number of drugs. Uh, take us through your thinking on the topic about what needs to be done uh, in this area. And Jim would welcome your comment after uh, Dr. Berwick as well. 
it's, it's a very bad problem and uh, <clears throat> continuing to worsen mostly. Uh, it's not one problem, though. Their drug prices depends on which tier of drugs we're talking about. The high end of the extremely expensive biologics and biosimilars, we are seeing very, very little uh, discipline exercised by the uh, companies themselves and the market forces are not working. I'd love to hear Jim's comments about it. I can't wait to read his book. I'm personally seeing no alternative but some very aggressive administrative pricing of drugs. I just don't see a way to get that under control. They're, the prices are seen and they don't have rationale in my book in the middle ground you know there are a lot there i think competition can do a lot i think part d remember came in a lot cheaper than anyone thought it would right. and I, you know there is a there is room for competition to do that you have to be able to open up uh competition there are some patent laws that need to be changed there's some awful stories around the defects in the drug patent laws that allow capture of medications as old as the pyramids and then enormous high pricing. I'm also a fan of some of the new new stuff that's going on in competition in the generic market. I I was an advisor to Civica RX, which is a very, very interesting move by healthcare providers to make their own drugs. Mm -hmm. And I suspect we might see some more of that. So it's not one size fits all. I am a fan of Medicare negotiating prices, but we have yet to see really whether that's going to work. And uh, I'm going to follow the changes in the recent legislation with, with great interest as kind of an early try at whether that using that market power can help. But I, again, I say the, the lack of discipline is shocking. And in fact, the uh, nearly fraudulent or nearly uh, uh, Ill, not quite illegal activities around drug pricing need to be brought under control. There are some FDA reforms that would help. I hope there's some bipartisan thought about that because we are a little slow in terms of helping um, important drugs emerge, and I'd be happy to see that happen as well. Yeah. Well, my perspective basically is that inevitably in the drug space and the drug pricing space, you're balancing two uh, conflicting objectives, which is you want research and innovation to bring new products into the market that are better therapeutics than what is currently available. At the same time, you want to make all of the therapeutics priced at a level that they're affordable and accessible for the whole country, everybody equally. And those are difficult to reconcile. And I think the big missing piece here is really a much more vigorous and publicly run and publicly initiated effort to figure out which drugs coming online are actually valuable and which ones aren't. So if we have things coming online with very high and elevated prices that don't deliver therapeutic benefits, they shouldn't be priced high. The, the big part is deciding what is the clinical value of a new product. And I think we could do a much better job of identifying that. Frankly, Germany does a better job than we do in that regard and trying to price according to value rather than just letting the drug companies decide what the value is. So there should be a much more public effort, my view is, around identifying those things that are coming online that really are beneficial and those things that are not. And the things that are not, they should be priced at the generic level. I'm also wondering about another need that I'd love to hear Jim's thought about at some point. Uh, there actually is not an awful lot of correlation between what might call the social need for a drug, that, that if you could pick the top 10 drugs to create, what would they be? And the uh, resource research investments in being induced by the current market forces or whatever forces are there. I'm wondering if there's a possible policy initiative which would change that, which would sweeten interest in producing the drugs which we need most for the mm-hmm. health of the public. Uh, and decrease interest in the others. I've not explored that to the extent I want to, but I think that would be an, a very interesting avenue of policy research. Well, in, in that spirit of the season, we want to end on a, on a positive note. 
Where, where do you see the opportunity for progressives and conservatives that come together in 2023 on healthcare issues? Not crickets. <laughs> no, I, I think we've already hit on some of them. There's no, there should be bipartisan interest in a strong public health infrastructure. Uh, doesn't matter, doesn't matter how you vote, you're going to pay the price if we don't have one. And that's got to be government. You can't. There's no pub, private sector public health defense. We did talk about drugs. Uh, we, I think we're all worried about it. We have different solutions. My solutions are certainly different from gins, but we're concerned enough. We ought to find our way to some answers. The mental health and substance misuse uh, arena is desperate, killing tens of thousands of Americans. And we have not yet formulated strong public policy on that. And I think we probably could find a bipartisan route there. On markets and the ACA, we will continue to disagree. I don't have much faith that market solutions are going to be the ones that work. But then again, I haven't studied Jim's book yet. So maybe I'll change my mind. (laughs) Well, I think on this question of mental health and substance abuse, it's really bordering on really a crisis in the United States at this point. It really needs to be attended to by both parties because it's affecting so many aspects of our society. And I think there is great interest in both parties and being just much more aggressive in putting together a national strategy to really get the problems that are out there a little bit better under control and directed and treated. And uh, so I, I'm hopeful that that it could be one big area where there could be a lot of bipartisan agreement and movement. And then on these other things, some of them are by necessity. They're going to have to do Medicare probably on a bipartisan basis because neither party probably has enough political capital to do it on its own. That's so right. some Medicare solvency will probably be bipartisan. Uh, I wouldn't anticipate that right away, but over time, that, that'll probably happen. When all else fails, bipartisanship possibly may win the day. Thank you both, uh, Don and Jim, for joining us today, for sharing your insights, for your work. Uh, and thank you to our audience for joining us. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up uh, to keep updated uh, with hearing from us at chcradio.com. Thank you so much. Best wishes to both of you. Yeah. Thanks. Happy Thank holidays you to you. Yeah, happy holidays. Thank Take you. Care. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori What have you got for us this week? A randomized controlled trial and real-world studies have found that for certain patients, Paxlovid, Pfizer's COVID-19 antiviral pill, reduces the risk of severe COVID-19 and death. The Food and Drug Administration authorized the drug for outpatients at high risk for progression to severe COVID-19 based on a randomized controlled trial that found the medication to be about 88% effective in preventing hospitalization and death in unvaccinated high-risk adults with COVID-19. High-risk people with mild to moderate COVID-19 are eligible to take a five-day course of Paxlovid as long as they start the pills within five days of symptom onset. Paxlovid consists of two sets of tablets that are taken together. One drug prevents replication of the coronavirus and the other boosts levels of the first drug in the blood. Several observational studies have subsequently found that Paxlovid is effective in the real world, particularly for older, high-risk people and those who are unvaccinated. An online post being shared on social media, however, claims that the drug is a fraud and shouldn't be used. The real-world studies, however, have shown the medication is effective. 
One study, published in October in The Lancet, found that in Hong Kong, Paxlovid was associated with a 66% lower risk of death and 24% lower risk of hospitalization among a mostly older, 60 years and above, or unvaccinated population. An unpublished study of patients 50 years and older in Massachusetts and New Hampshire similarly found the risk of hospitalization after a COVID-19 diagnosis during an Omicron wave was 45% lower among those prescribed Paxlovid, with greater reductions among those who were unvaccinated or obese. There have been cases of rebound with and without taking Paxlovid. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Indu Navar's husband was diagnosed with ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, their experience was worsened by the medical establishment's lack of swift testing protocols for diagnosis. Of the 30,000 Americans who suffer from this debilitating disease, diagnosis is often the result of the process of elimination, and it can take an average of 18 months to confirm. It took us two and a half years to get diagnosed. And in that time, I saw him deteriorate every day. As ALS slowly overtook her husband, Nuvar founded a nonprofit to help others that are dealing with this paralyzing disease. She launched Everything ALS with a goal of developing artificial intelligence interventions that might help clinicians diagnose the illness sooner. Noting the growing body of research looking at the voice as a new biomarker for neurological disease, a decline in speaking patterns often precedes more serious neurological symptoms. So, working with engineers, she launched the Everything ALS Speech Research Study, an online volunteer voice bank in the hopes of building an algorithm that could detect subtle changes in voice expression. What people can do is they can actually donate their speech and also get involved in our research by going to everythingals.org. And what we do is what that all that data, we actually apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to find patterns. For example, right now we're finding patterns in speaking rate and also changes in the lip. And so we will start finding many such biomarkers that will be implicated in progression tracking of the disease and also for early diagnosis of the disease. Vocal volunteers merely download a dedicated app, speak into it for a few minutes once a week, and scientists continue to fine tune the algorithm detecting which patients are experiencing further decline. Their data is also open source, so their findings can be shared broadly with researchers and pharmaceutical companies that are developing better diagnostics and treatments for this devastating disease. So it's it's really bringing in open innovation. So all the data that we collect is anonymized and then made available in an open innovation platform for thousands of researchers who can actually take a look at the data along with our own data science team. So that's how we facilitate many clinicians, researchers, and pharma companies who work with us to benefit from 
every second of the effort that you actually put in. To accelerate research, we need to get involved in the research. So that's why we've created a platform with citizen-driven research and open innovation is a future of solving ALS and other neurodegenerative disease. So this is really a force multiplier. The nonprofit hopes to expand their research and data offerings to those working on other neurological disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. The Everything ALS Speech Research Study, an open data algorithm building platform using vocal volunteers in collaboration with dedicated scientists, all motivated by seeking a swifter diagnosis and hopefully one day a treatment or a cure for ALS. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and chcradio.com.